Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I talk with editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson to get the latest early voting numbers, including what turnout has been, how the urban numbers compare to the rurals, and which party's voters have more ballots in. After that, I chat with interns Tabitha Mueller, Kristen Leonard, and Savannah Strott about some of the down-ballot races to watch. Then I chat with a member of Team Indy who listeners don't get to hear from much to once again pull the curtain back on some of the -the behind-the-scenes work we do here. And at the end of the show, I talk with reporter Megan Messerly to get the latest numbers and newest developments related to the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada. Now on to the rest of the show. All right, and so I am here with editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson to talk about the early vote numbers once again this week. We're going to be doing these all, you know, during and before the election, uh, so you guys kind of have an idea. And John, you've got your early vote blog going on. How are you feeling? Tired. Or about <laughs> what the numbers mean, Joey. Yeah. So, John, tell us where we are with D's versus R's statewide. Washoe Clark. Let's let's start there. Well, you know, the numbers update are updating in a very strange way this year, which has made it even more difficult to do what I usually do. And and that's because this is a mostly male election or much more of a male election in the past because of the pandemic and the bill that was passed during the special session. So it's, you know, we're talking at on, on Thursday afternoon and things are in flux. And I just actually, it was good timing, Joey, because I just updated the blog, but it looks like the Democrats have somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 55,000 ballot lead in the state. And it's about, I think last I looked, about 59,000 in in Clark County and about 10,000 in Washoe County. And the rurals, of course, are starting to pick up, and the Republicans are winning there now by, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 14,000. I may have those numbers slightly off. But the situation is is that it's upside down. Usually, there are not that many mail ballots, and there's a ton of early voting by now. We're on day six. And so it's, and then, you know, including today, there are nine more days. And so we don't know. We don't know what the, usually I can see trends develop or, or trends that start to make sense after a few days that mirror what's happened before, but that's all out the window this time. So having said that, I I, I will say that I'd rather be the Democrats than the Republicans now, obviously, but the Republicans are confident and they've started to win early voting by decent uh, amounts in the two urban counties every day, which never happens, by the way, during early voting, but is because Donald Trump and Adam Laxalt and the gang have scared all of them to not vote uh, by by mail and instead vote in person, either early voting or on election day. So there are a lot of votes still le- left out there, but I, I'd rather be the Democrats than the Republicans. Now the Democrats are doing what they always do. As you know, Elizabeth, they're banking a lot of votes before election day, thinking that the Republicans will turn out better on election day and they've banked so many votes that it doesn't matter. In 2016, I was able to say that Trump was going to lose after early voting was over because there just weren't enough votes left for him to catch up. Some people, Joey, are probably listening saying, wait a second, how does Ralston know that who everyone's voting for? This is a corrupt process. How does he see the ballots? Well, of course, (laughs) I don't see the ballots. But what I do see are are, are polling and conventional 
uh, voting patterns that show that each candidate's gonna get somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of their base vote, and that will tell you essentially how many votes they have. One last thing, and I, I'll, I'll let you jump in, Elizabeth, is that there, there, there's been an upsurge here, as in many states, with independents, nonpartisans, third-party vote. There's a lot of those out there. I think about 100,000 of them have voted already. And, and they're going to make the difference in the race, probably, if it's relatively close. But right now, right now, even if Trump were winning those by double digits, he would still lose the state. They need to close the gap. Yeah, so interesting, John. And uh, I personally love it that you obsess about this because then I don't have to. It's great <laughs> to have you on the team. Nobody else in the world has to because I do. <laughs> you know, I want to give a shout out to John, to National journalists follow him pr precisely because he obsesses over these numbers day in and day out, and nobody understands better how the math works. And this year you've added tables and charts and graphs and different scenarios. And it's really just been outstanding work, John, I got to tell you. And I'm, I'm not just uh, saying that to blow sunshine. It's, it's Thank pretty you. Cool. No, I know you don't do that. So I really appreciate it. And hopefully, the, as I was telling Joey before we started, the caffeine and adrenaline is going to get me through the election. <laughs> and, and, and I won't just collapse before then. But no, I, I appreciate that. And by the way, a shout out to our colleague, Megan Messerly, who gave me a crash course in Infogram to help those, some of those, me make some of those charts. So thanks, and, Megan. Yeah, John, Megan's not doing it for him. John is making his own charts and graphs. It's quite it's amazing. Uh, he got him a computer. He learned how to turn it on himself. <laughs> he took a typing class. Amazing. It's been great. Amazing. Yes, yes. John, here's what I want to know. So one of the reasons that people get a little confused, I think, cycle to cycle, is that they sometimes forget that the number of registered voters increases. And so that changes all the percentage and all the ratios, right? So how many more voters statewide are we, do we, are we dealing with this cycle versus let's say just the prior cycle? Well, the answer to that question is approximately 250,000 uh, new voters. I, I believe are, 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 are going to be registered by the time of, of the election. It was about 1.5 in, in million in, in 2016. It's about one. It's coming, it's coming up on 1.8 now, I think, total, maybe 1.75. So there's a lot more. And so that affects some of these, this, this analysis as well. For instance, I always talk about the Clark County firewall. If any term could ever be copyrighted, that's, that, that, that term of mine could be copyrighted, showing that the, 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 and by that, I mean the number of votes that the Democrats have banked in Clark County, which is two-thirds or so of the vote. So as I was alluding to earlier, it doesn't really matter uh, what happens in the rest of the state. It was about uh, 73,000 or so in 2016, which is very similar to the number it was in 2012 when there were fewer voters. But there's so many more new voters now this cycle. I think that the Democrats are not going to be not going to be um, comfortable if it's only 73,000. They'll want to get it well up over 80,000 in Clark County. I'm, I, I mean, they, they are well on the way to doing that. They're way ahead of their pace. But I'm not confident, and, and I bet some of them are not that confident they're going to get there as the mail slows down a bit and the Republicans are doing pretty well in, in early voting. But it's, it's pretty big right now in, in terms of the, the advantage. They're, they're almost... They're only 10,000 or so short of where they were in 2016. And so they, they do need to keep doing what they're doing or they will not get to the number I think they feel 
comfortable with, which means, uh, and this will disappoint a lot of people, I'm not going to make any predictions uh, before election day if that occurs, because we don't even know what's going to happen this time on election day. You know, you hear all these Republicans talking about how they're going to wait and vote on election day. Maybe the turnout is going to be much different. Usually it's only about a third of the vote is left, but maybe it'll be more. Yeah, and I want to remind everyone, we do have same-day registration in Nevada, and that matters more and more the larger your population is and the more active your parties are in building that. So that, that's kind of another what we'll call a wild card for Election Day. We have no idea of knowing how many people are going to register same day, what party are they going to be from, how are they going to vote. So that's a factor, too. What, let's talk a little bit about Washoe. County, John, are you seeing anything? Again, I know it's hard to make predictions and comparisons because it's such a different year, but are, are you seeing anything that's standing out to you in Washoe? Well, Washoe County has changed a lot uh, since I started covering politics eons ago in, in Las Vegas. And, and it is uh, Hillary Clinton won Washoe County. It used to be a very Republican county. It's now a swing county. The registration is relatively close. By far the most surprising thing that I have seen in these early numbers, and I just posted this, is that the turnout in Washoe County is approaching 40%, which is way more, way more than any other uh, county. And, and whether that's going to run or not, it's a very, very good question. But without going through all the math, if it's about 40% turnout of voters and turnout is somewhere between 80 and 90% when all is said and done, that means almost half the vote in Washoe County may already be done. Uh, this far from from the election and the democrats are up by nine points and they're up by ten thousand votes at the end of early voting in in 2016 they were ahead by a thousand votes so they have to feel pretty good about it hillary clinton ended up winning washoe county by about four thousand votes if i'm remembering uh, correctly if that that takes a lot of pressure off of the democrats and the the so-called clark county firewall if they can hold washoe to a tie or even win Washoe. That is very bad news for the Republicans. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Why why Washoe is voting so so big so early, I don't know. But th- th- they are. And those numbers, after about half the vote in, cannot make the Republicans happy. Joey Lovato, you live in Reno. What Do you have a theory of what is happening in Washoe County? Why, why is everyone rushing out the door to vote and, and not listening to John's admonitions that they should perhaps wait a bit? You know, I, I don't know why everyone is going out to vote, but I will say that I, I did early vote, which John chastised me for in our last podcast segment. <laughs> and, you know, I was surprised. I, I filled out my mail-in ballot and I dropped it off at a location and it went really smooth. It was really easy. Um, there were a lot of people there, but it wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a line really like the line is moving incredibly quickly and i've kind of driven around reno and i've seen that you know there are lines but i've never i would never consider them long and they seem to be moving at a really quick pace but i almost consistently see that there are people out either looking to early vote when i went to vote i went and grabbed lunch and i went through the drive-thru and the guy at the drive-thru was asking me how early voting went because he saw my i voted sticker and so people are really kind of curious and interested which i thought was really interesting it seems like everything is going really smoothly, which is good. And then I was also just going to mention that I've been getting some emails from readers about ballot tracking and just, you know, if you've signed up for that or not. And I signed up for ballot tracking and I got my text, I think, four days after I dropped off my ballot. So that kind of seems to be what I've when I've talked to other people where they've where they've been getting um, notifications about about tracking your ballot. So, you know, I think it also depends on the county that you're in. Yeah, I was just going to say, so Amy Tarkanian, who's a friend of the Indy and also the wife of now soon-to-be county commissioner, Danny Tarkanian, 
put out on Twitter the other day that she got a verification of her ballot within one day. And in her estimation, things were going just fine there in that's Douglas County. I've heard from other, I've seen, this is anecdotal, of course, but I've seen on Twitter and I've gotten some emails. It seems to be two to four days somewhere in there that people are getting a verification that at least we have received your ballot. In some cases, your ballot has been, it's been accepted. That doesn't mean it's been counted. It just means it's been accepted as a valid vote and it's gone into a stack for counting later. John, people are asking us about the counting. When does the actual counting begin? begun. It started 14 days before the election by that law. And so they're counting. Now that doesn't mean that they're putting the votes out publicly. It just means that unlike states like Pennsylvania and some of the others in the Midwest, people may have read about where they can't start that until election day, and that's going to hold up their final results. They're going to be able to have counted a lot of the vote in Nevada by election day. And so we will know a lot more than some of these other states. One other quick thing just to talk about Nevada. I I misspoke. As much as Washoe County is turning out, uh, Carson City has 46% of the vote in already. You may remember that Carson City, which is turning out almost half the votes out there, has, is where Donald Trump went and did that rally. And whether that's affected turnout there or not, but just when you get a sense of it, when I say almost 40% of the vote is in in Washoe County, that's 118,000 votes. And almost half the vote in Carson City is about 17,000 votes. So people get a sense of just how much smaller all those 15 rural counties are than Washoe and how much smaller Washoe is compared to Clark. We really are three different states and since, let me just, I, I know we want to, we don't want to completely geek out here the way that I do on the blog, but really only essentially of those other 15 counties, only, only six of them really matter, have uh, populations where the Republicans can uh, pile up uh, some votes. So I'm going to put my, my colleagues here on the spot, everyone listening, what is the largest one, which of those counties, those rural counties, has the largest number of registered voters, after, third after Washoe? Elko is my guess, but it Elko could be is Nye. One of the six important ones. Nye is one of the six important ones, but that is not that is not correct. Is it Lincoln? And, uh, Lincoln is Lincoln small, uh, but I will tell you all, and so you don't feel that badly that I didn't realize this or I had forgotten this, but probably I didn't realize it. Lyon County is the third biggest by registered voters, uh, and then Douglas after that, and they're both very very red counties. Uh, Lyon and Douglas both have very close to 40,000 registered voters. Uh, and then there's a drop off to Nye, then Elko, and, and, and no, Carson, Nye, Elko, and Churchill. And those six are the only ones that really matter. So thank goodness for Google. So listeners, Lyon County stretches from Fernley at the north all the way down to, it doesn't, there's sort of Pine Grove, Smith Valley area, a little bit south of that on the south end. It stops short of the Walker River Reservation on the east, and then it butts up against uh, Douglas County on the west, which is Gardnerville, Minden, and and all that. So that makes sense that that's a population center there, as it is so close to to Reno and and Carson and so forth. Hmm. I'm very surprised to hear that. I was too, Joey, when I was starting to do all my uh, spreadsheet mania. Which we have plenty of, plenty of spreadsheets to be working on. I'm going to wrap this up really quick, but I wanted to bring up one thing before we did, which is, John, you tweeted out today that today is your 36th year to the day that you've been a, a, a Nevada journalist. So, you know, that's 11 years older than I am. 
<laughs> but wow. you know, congratulations on on that feat. And you know, I don't know if you wanted to give us a little story about why you're uh, still here. <laughs> Actually, I haven't put it on Twitter yet, but it was in my newsletter. I should. Oh, it was it in your Twitter. newsletter. That's right. Yeah, I should put it on Twitter. But yeah, listen, uh, when I uh, when I came here to be a entry level job at the Las Vegas Review Journal as a night cop reporter, it, it never occurred to me that I would be here 36 years later. I thought I'd be here for two years on my career path back to the New York Times, which was the paper that I just idolized and my dad read every day. And when I was growing up in Buffalo and opportunity just kept knocking here and I have absolutely no regrets as I wrote in that uh, a newsletter a bit Joey I, I have had so many great opportunities but I'll say here what I said in 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 that blurb in my newsletter and Elizabeth knows this is true and I think Joey even though you haven't known me as long you instinctively know this is true by far the best thing I've ever done out of writing columns tv shows being a reporter is the indie I am I, I could not be prouder of the indie and the indie it is I am proud of because of everybody associated with the indie who have made it as great as it just my only greatness with the indie is choosing the people to populate it because I, I just could not be prouder of it. And so, yes, Joey, to get you know, we buried the lead. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we're all tearing up a little bit. So I'll end it there. But uh, John, thank you. I know Nevada would not be the same without uh, without your journalism. Uh, thank you. Expertise. So we appreciate it. Now we wanted to take a closer look at a few of this year's local races, or at least some of the smaller ones. And to do that, we've invited an all-star panel of our very own interns. Joining me now to talk about all manner of local races are interns Kristen Leonard, Tabitha Mueller, and Savannah Stroud. So Kristen, let's start with you, and let's start with the Clark County Commission. Obviously, the Clark County Commission, one of the most powerful legislative bodies in the state. Um, And there are a couple races down there. Uh, Let's run through them really quickly. What seats are up for grabs for the Clark County Commission in 2020? So there are four seats up for grabs on the commission this year. Those are in District A, B, C, and D. In Districts A and B, we're seeing incumbents running against less well-funded opponents uh, to try and keep their seats. So District A, Michael Naft, who's a Democrat, is currently holding that seat. Naft was appointed by Governor Sisolak in 2019 when Sisolak left the commission himself to take on being the governor. He is running against Republican Michael Thomas. NAFT is far, NAFT is far more well-funded than Thomas. NAFT is actually far more well-funded than any other candidate for the commission right now. Since 2019, when he was appointed, he has raised over a million dollars for this race. That's more than some House candidates, I should say. (laughs) Yes, it is a lot of money. So even after spending more than 300,000 on his campaign since January, he's still is left with a cash on hand balance right now of $750,000. In comparison, his, um, his opponent, Thomas, has not reported any cash on hand balance, no spending, no contributions during the same period. So NAFT is essentially running against an opponent who is not funding a campaign at all, but is still spending vast amounts of money on advertising to do so. In District B, we're also seeing an incumbent. So District B has the commission chair, Marilyn Kirkpatrick, running against two opponents, and that is Republican Kevin Williams and a candidate from the Independent American Party, Warren Ross Markowitz. Uh, Neither of them have reported any 
any contributions or any spending during the same period. Kirkpatrick is less well-funded than NAF, but still pretty well-funded with her cash on hand is about nearly 300000 It's about $290,000 right now. And those are the two incumbent races we're seeing. Of the, of the two seats that are completely up for grabs, all newcomers, one of the districts is less competitive than the other. District D has a Democratic majority when it comes to active registered voters. It's about 55% of active registered voters in that region are registered Democrat. And so in that district, we're seeing Democratic candidate William McCurdy, who is the current chair of the Democratic Party in the state running against three nonpartisan opponents. McCurdy has received financial support from pretty much everyone currently on the board. Um, McCurdy's facing three nonpartisan candidates. Uh, only one of them has been, uh, has reported any contributions or spending this cycle, and that is David Washington, who is a former Las Vegas fire chief. And that leaves one district uh, that actually is pretty competitive, if memory serves. Tell me about that. Yeah, so District C is the only one where we're seeing candidates who are very well funded from both major parties. So District C is where Larry Brown is currently leaving the seat. He's a Democrat. Actually, everyone on the commission right now is a Democrat. But we are seeing a very well funded Republican campaigning in this district. Democrats do have a plurality of registered voters in the region. They're at about 39%, but Republicans aren't far behind at 31%. So in District C, we are seeing Democrat Ross Miller, who's the former Secretary of State, facing off against Las Vegas City Councilman Republican Stavros Anthony. Both of them are very well funded. They've been pretty even in contributions this year with a little over 50,000 for each of them in the first quarter of the year. They both reported around 40,000 in contributions in the second quarter of the year. But Anthony has far more cash on hand. He is reporting about $200,000 just in his campaign fund while Miller ended this quarter with only $3,000. Miller outspent Anthony in the second quarter of the year he spent around $80,000, whereas Anthony only spent $60,000. But Anthony was spending all year. Anthony didn't actually face a Republican opponent in his primary. He still spent $200,000 on consulting and advertising during those first few months of the year, even though he wasn't sure who his general election candidate or who his general election opponent was going to be. So now we're going to turn to uh, another set of races up north of this time, and and let's talk to you, Tabitha. So uh, you're up in Reno. You've been looking at these Reno City Council races. So let's break it down real quick. What's actually up for grabs right now? So right now up for grabs on the Reno City Council are four out of the seven council seats. Oh, sorry. I'm going to redo that just because that notification went up. Um, Up for grabs right now on Reno City Council are four out of seven council seats, and all of those council seats are nonpartisan and almost every candidate identifies as nonpartisan. There are a couple where we're seeing in some of the, in some of, in some of the races where candidates are identifying as democratic, but it's pretty nonpartisan down the row there. Um, And three of those councils, three of the seven seats, including the mayor who votes on the council, but she doesn't represent a geographic district are not up for reelection this cycle. And as I mentioned, council seats are nonpartisan and council members typically receive salaries of about $80,000 include and along with benefits uh, each year for their position. These are four year positions that they're going to be serving on the council. 
Okay. And let's dig into a few of these races. Now, as far as I understand, two of them are more competitive or at least uh, more active, we'll say, than the other two. So, so what are those two competitive races? So the two most competitive races, in my opinion, is the Ward 1 race and the at-large race. And Ward 1 is incumbent Jenny Breckis, and she's being challenged by real estate agent J.D. Draculich. And then the other competitive one it has perennial candidate um, Eddie Lorton, who's also a business owner in the community, against the newly appointed, uh, the, the recently appointed council member, uh, Devin Reese. And those two races, I think, are the most competitive just in the fact that they have very similar spending, very similar, uh, very similar fundraising campaigns that have been happening. And the money is really close in those. The other two races, which are in Ward 3 and Ward 5, feature two well-established incumbents going against some upstart challengers, but the upstart challengers haven't really received much funding. And they, and the challengers, when I spoke with them, said, you know, funding, you know, funding is just one piece of the puzzle, and they're hoping to reach voters by every means possible. But in terms of really competitive races, it is that Ward, ward 1 and at-large race. Okay. And so let's dig into those races real quick. Uh, So what would you say are the defining themes of each race there? So I think the defining theme, so let's, let's start with just one of those, which is the at-large race. And that's Eddie Lorton and Devin Reese, as I said. And Eddie Lorton is kind of this perennial candidate in Reno. He's run for mayor multiple times. He's not um, won that seat. And when you're talking about this at-large seat, Reese is um, very favored within that district, and Lorton is very outspoken about um, some of the things that have been happening. He, for instance, homelessness and housing is a huge issue in Reno right now. Uh, Lorton wants to put that issue back to the county. He believes it's a county-level decision that should be made. Reese is um, advocating for kind of more of a regional approach, which is sort of what has been happening currently on the council. And... Um, Reese, let's see here. So Lorton, one of Lorton's big things is um, he's, he's brought a lot into this campaign. Uh, he, he brought in Lorton's younger brother for a point to give a video. It was pretty inflammatory. He's made some um, interesting remarks on the radio about, um, about Reese's status as a member of the LGBTQ community. So it's a really tense race in that both candidates, in that Lorton has consistently attacked Reese for different things, um, both personal and uh, social media posts and other other details. And Reese has responded to them calling tasteless, but he's kind of been trying to maintain above the fray, which is interesting. Uh, when I was speaking with him, he told me, you know, never wrestle with pigs. You get you both get filthy and the pig likes it. So he's really been trying to maintain sort of a more pulled back approach. But today, actually, one of the things that occurred is People have been defacing some of Lorton's signs in the area, um, drawing mustaches that are reminiscent of uh, Adolf Hitler's mustache on his signs. And uh, apparently they were also stealing these signs and hiding them. And Lorton accused some of the business owners. So this is a really interesting race and we could go into it more. Um, But I would say that there's a difference in that um, Lorton is really advocating some very conservative policies as you're coming up on the city. He wants to sell surplus property of the city. He wants to move homeless shelter out of the downtown area, whereas Lorton is kind of wanting to continue in the trend in which the council has been going. 
Okay. And really quickly, let's let's dig a little bit into that uh, Brechus and Draculich race. Brechus is, in the Brechus-Draculich race, uh, there's actually, so the Brechus-Draculich race, Brechus has consistently stood on her platform. She, oh my God, there's so much to talk about with these races. Um, Brechus is, a, this will be her third and final term as councilperson if she's elected. Draculich is a residential real estate agent. And he is really drawing on his deep-rooted connections. He's from an old Reno family. He's bringing that very much to this election cycle. Breckus is a somewhat newcomer, and I say that with quotation marks because newcomer in Nevada is she's been here for a long time, um, but she's not from that old Reno kind of family. And Breckus, Draculich has criticized Breckus um, for her lack of a strong stance on addressing homelessness until recently because Breckis hasn't really talked much about that until the end of this election cycle. And um, Breckis is really centering her campaign on improving the city's fiscal condition, supporting healthy and sustainable city growth, and then increasing affordable housing. And that's something that it's at the very center of both of their campaigns is increasing housing stock for the community um, and trying to address a housing crunch that I don't know if it's going to go away anytime soon. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there because we want to squeeze in one more set of races, and that's the races for the Board of Regents. Now, Savannah, you've been taking a look at this, um, and the Regents is an interesting board because uh, they they are perhaps one of the lesser-known electoral boards in Nevada. So first, can you walk us through what races are up for grabs here? Yeah, so um, Regents, because uh, like you said, it's one of the lesser known boards, um, they oversee kind of Nevada higher education. Um, And so we have four open seats on the 13 seat board. um, And those will be for six years that they will be kind of managing and getting Nevada higher ed out of the challenges and the fallout of the pandemic that um, our schools and universities are currently going through. And so of those four open seats, um, so we have three based in the south and one based um, up north. And so the one up north is District 10. And so that is between Joseph Arascata and Kevin Melcher. Um, Arascata is a community member who has been very vocal about the um, renovations of UNR's football stadium because Um, As some may know, there's been several attempts to renovate it, um, but those attempts have not been ADA compliant. Um, And Arascada is a wheelchair user, and he said that was extremely frustrating, um, you know, for him. And he's been very vocal about it, speaking to regents about that. And also, he says he is a community member, and he just wants to have a voice in higher education. And so he's been kind of rallying around that. Um, and so he's going off, he's going against Kevin Milchler, um, who used to be a regent um, in the previous turn back in the area covering Elko and more of Western Nevada, who didn't seek re-election um, because he was moving to Reno. And so he said that they were asking him to run once it was clear that the incumbent wasn't going to run again. And so he is kind of seeking to kind of pick up where he left off and keep going um, with kind of the different initiatives he had. He said he doesn't really have any issues that he's really um, kind of spearheading other than kind of getting higher ed out of the pandemic hole um, that it's kind of sunk itself into. And so they're actually of the four races, they're the only race that is 
somewhat competitive in money. Um, Arascata didn't have any fundraising or spending in the first period, um, but Meltzer did. He was one of the only candidates in the primary that did. Um, and so here in the second period, we see that Arascata and Meltzer are both raising um, funds decently close to each other. Um, our Arascata is actually spending um, is spending about half of what Meltzer is spending, um, and but Meltzer is actually still um, about six, seven thousand um, dollars more cash on hand than Arascata. Um, and so going to District Five, um, we have two candidates, Patrick Bowman, who has kind of ran several times for Democratic primaries and have not been successful in those. And then we also have Dr. Nick Spiritos, um, who is a doctor and is. Um, and has run for this seat in 2014 and lost against Sam Lieberman. Um, and so both of these are kind of trying to get their um, place in the district. Um, Spiritus is really campaigning for the UNLV Medical School. Um, also, he would like to see some differences, some changes in affirmative action um, and different grading policies. And Bowen is really trying to address diversifying the economy through diversifying and strengthening different programs in higher ed. Um, and Bolin has raised no money, um, first or second period, um, but Spiritos has raised um, a lot, mostly self-funded, $15,000 in the second period. Uh, so that's that's quite a bit for one of these Regents races. And unfortunately, we're running out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But if you want to know more about any of these uh, elections, uh, you can find all of our election previews at the NevadaIndependent.com. Uh, Tabitha Mueller, Savannah Strott, Kristen Leonard, thanks so much for joining me. We really appreciate it. All right, and so we are on the third segment of the podcast, and I am joined today by another person that uh, you listeners don't get to hear from very often, essential to the Indies, uh, you know, day-to-day operations, and that's Stacey Shipman. Stacey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Stacey, can you kind of just explain, you know, what your job is here? What's your job title, and, and, you know, what do you do for the Indy? So I am the administrative assistant for the Nevada Independent, and I basically do all admin support for John and Elizabeth, as well as do all the HR for our team, handle sponsorships, donations, events, pretty much all the stuff no one else wants to do. And, and you are the, the second, you're, you're one of two people, CJ Keeney being the other one, that you, know, you don't have a background in journalism. How did, you, how did you end up at the Nevada Independent? One of our readers actually saw an ad in the TDI one day for the position when it became available last year and thought it would be a good fit, so she sent it over to me. So is this just like someone you know or? Yes, I've known her for years and years and years. So what did you do before you were our office administrator? I have done lots of things in the last couple of years. I have a paralegal degree and I've worked for a couple law firms and I did about 12 years as a civil servant with the United States Air Force. All right. So, you know, without you, we, we wouldn't get paid. <laughs> you know, you're very important <laughs> specifically to us, uh, you know, us employees. But, you know, you do keep the, the day-to-day operations going. And also, again, you help a lot with all of the events and behind the scenes stuff. I mean, you do a ton of work that people just don't realize. And without this, this work, you know, we wouldn't have these events and that helps fund the indie you know, so we can all keep our jobs. What are your like favorite responsibilities to do, you know, for us? You have a lot, you know, on your plate, I feel like. I think my favorite would be advertising and sponsorship coordinating. Okay. I like working with the donors. 
I like working with the events, helping put ads out for people, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, so you, you've been with us for a little over a year. How have you seen the, the indie kind of change and you know, how has it affected your, maybe your view on news? I feel like people that work in the news industry that aren't reporters probably experience this uh, world in a much different way. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm a little bit more educated now on politics in general, but I've learned from working with the indie just how cutthroat the news can be. There, there's a, a story that we did about a year ago now, and it was a, a big story and got a lot of national attention, and there was a lot of negativity because not all news sources correctly and accurately tell you what was said. And so situations like that make, taught me to really challenge my thinking when I'm watching or reading other outlets and organizations so that I can make sure that I'm clicking the links, sourcing information that I'm using to make decisions for my life. All right, cool. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a little behind the scenes into how the indie works. And I won't ask you who your uh, who your favorite boss is. <laughs> I am the boss. That's right. Exactly. You're in charge. <laughs> you of don't get of paid without me. That's right. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for uh, <laughs> for chatting with me today. All right. Talk later. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Before we get into anything else, let's start with the numbers. So noting now that we're recording at 9.30 in the morning on Friday, October 23rd, what can you tell us about the data? Right. So we're sitting at about a little bit above 93,000 cases this morning. It's 93,048 as of right now. Uh, we've seen, you know, we've been talking about on this podcast the last couple of weeks, but we've been seeing cases increase since about mid-September uh, pretty pretty steadily. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, talk about a fall surge, right? So uh, officials are keeping a close eye on these numbers, the test positivity rate as well, which, you know, as as many of our listeners will recall, refers to the percentage of either people or tests that are coming back positive out of the total number of people or tests sampled, um, that number has been increasing as well. And so uh, obviously, you know, officials want to keep an eye on that number. Um, you know, we're not back where we were over the summer quite yet. Uh, we were north of, you know, a thousand cases on average a day being reported at the peak. So uh, not there yet. We're, we're more in the 600 range right now. But, um, you know, we want to keep a close eye on that to make sure that we don't see uh, the same spike in hospitalizations that we saw over the summer. Unfortunately, you know, we have not yet seen that. Um, hospitalizations have gone up a little bit since uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, but they haven't, uh, we haven't seen the same sort of steady increases that we've seen in the case numbers. So uh, we're a little bit north of, of 500 confirmed and suspected hospitalizations generally day to day, uh, but waiting to see if that, if that number goes up or if it stays uh, more steady. You know, the hospital association has said that they're um, they're not seeing the patient volume that they were previously. You know, there are folks with COVID in the hospital, but 
um, as they're seeing an increase in the number of just general uh, hospital occupancy. A lot of that has actually been from, you know, other causes, not necessarily from COVID. So uh, but obviously they want to keep an eye on the COVID numbers because, you know, the concern is, you know, if you have a, if you have a crush of other patients, you know, suffering from other ailments and then COVID numbers start to grow, that puts additional strain on the hospital capacity. So they're obviously keeping uh, a close eye on that. And then just wanted to mention we're at about uh, 1,736 deaths uh, as of right now. Um, we've seen uh, pretty steady decreases. We haven't yet seen an increase uh, in the number of deaths. Uh, on the other hand, you know, state officials have said, and we've talked about this before, that deaths tend to lag case trends by about five weeks. And we're about five weeks out from uh, when cases started to increase. So you know, if we're going to see a trend, that could start uh, happening soon. On the other hand, we don't know. We haven't seen that data yet. So um, we're at a pretty, um, obviously, there's still, you know, people dying from, from COVID. There were 36 deaths uh, specifically over the last week. Um, but it's, it's not what we saw over the summer when, when cases were peaking. Okay. Well, not a ton of COVID policy news to talk about, but there was one thing that happened this week, and that has to do with the debate over whether or not to reopen schools. Now, in Southern Nevada, schools have been online uh, this whole semester, but the Southern Nevada Health District gave its blessing to the Clark County School District uh, to reopen schools if the board wanted to make that decision. Um, can you dig into the, the health rationale for that? Why did, why did the health district make that decision? Yeah, well, it's been a really interesting question. And I, I would actually point to what's happening in Washoe County right now, uh, where, you know, they do have, uh, you know, some students are, are in-person learning, some are hybrid learning, and some are, are distance learning. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things that came up this week at the COVID-19 Mitigation and Ma Management Task Force meeting was that um, the largest share of cases in Washoe County, 70 cases over the last week, were actually tied back to the school district between K-12 through students um, and educators. So there has been a lot of conversation about, uh, you know, the, the pros and cons, right, of, of opening schools and the, the benefits to, to kids and their education. Um, but at the same time, you know, bringing more people together for a prolonged period of time um, increases your, your chance of exposure. And so, you know, Washoe County has been dealing with that to some extent and uh, their cases have been increasing significantly there. They're, they're much higher than they are in Clark County even right now. And Clark County sort of uh, bore the worst of it uh, this summer, but now we're seeing, you know, Washoe County, um, you know, struggling with, with these uh, case numbers. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that, you know, we have seen that, you know, taking action can have some results. For instance, the Washoe County uh, noted that they, uh, they still have quite a few cases at, at the University of Nevada, Reno, uh, 34 cases over the last week, but they noted that that's a decrease, um, you know, that, that if you sort of take steps as, as President Sandoval has, uh, you know, to, to try to curb the spread of, of COVID, um, you know, it's, it's possible to have an impact on your, your case numbers. So again, this all kind of comes down to the cost benefit analysis of, you know, making the decision to open businesses, open schools, open classrooms, um, and weighing that against the possible, you know, health, um, health effects of that, which is obviously the spread of COVID-19. Well, we will have to leave it there for now. But as always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard, now lovingly manually updated by Megan. <laughs> the tech site is broken, um, as, as well as all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank John Ralston, Elizabeth Thompson, Tabitha Mueller, Kristen Leonard, Savannah Strott, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you'd like to listen. Do you have thoughts on the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>